Hey everyone, uh, Handsome Jason here. Just want to thank you for tuning in and listening to the show. We really do appreciate it. Just want to make you aware of a few things that we've got going on. First and foremost, there's the Instagram pages and the Twitter pages that we have. That's where you can find us as well as uh, some of the content that we do when we're producing these shows. But far and above beyond that, we've just recently created a website. It's www.tappedintopsychedelics.com. If you log in there, you can see all of the episodes, uh, show notes, as well as transcripts will be published so that if you're more of a uh, visual person, you'll be able to read through all the content that uh, we've discussed. Additionally, you'll find a uh, donate button on the page. So if you like the work that we're doing and you want to help us make more of that, as well as support Adam and his uh, crippling Fabergé egg addiction, uh, I would suggest that you help us out and maybe throw a few schmeckles in our direction. It really uh, goes a long way and it is appreciated. Once again, that's www.tappedintopsychedelics.com. As always, if you want more of our content or you want to find it as it releases, please ensure that you like and subscribe to Tapped Into Psychedelics wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Tapped Into Psychedelics. I'm your host, Adam Tapp, and with me today is our guest, Dr. Bruce Grayson, who is a psychiatrist and a leading world foremost expert in near-death experiences. I think it's a reasonable statement. So how are you doing today, Dr. Grayson? I'm doing great, Adam, and thanks for having me on your on your program. No, thank you. You know, I've been really wanting to interview someone of real substance about this, and you are the perfect human being to be having a conversation with about this subject matter. So just because our, our guests may or may not entirely be aware of what a near-death experience is, do you think that you could maybe just get into the basis of what defines a near-death experience? Sure, sure. Uh, near-death experiences are profound events that many people have as they are approaching death or sometimes when they're pronounced dead that many people will interpret as spiritual or mystical. They include things like an intense feeling of peace and well-being, a sense of leaving the physical body sometimes, of reviewing your entire life in a matter of seconds or a fraction of a second, although time seems like it's eternal in the other realm, uh, sometimes encountering other entities that they may interpret as deceased loved ones or as deities, and at some point coming to a border or point of no return beyond which they can't keep going and still come back to life. Sometimes they choose to come back and sometimes they are told against their will to come back. Um, as a psychiatrist, uh, what fascinates me most is that these events, these experiences have profound after effects on people's attitudes, beliefs, values, and behavior. So what... Is it always people who are approaching death, or could I just be in a very terrifying circumstance and would this still elicit a response? Great question, Adam. Uh, most of the research has been done with people whose hearts have stopped, since that's a nice, discreet population we can study. But we do hear similar experiences from people who, as far as we can tell, did not have their hearts stopping. For example, people who are in car accidents and are sure they're going to die, but they don't or people who fall off mountains, and on the way down, they may have an elaborate near-death experience, but as far as we can tell, the heart's never stopped. 
And so because there's such a variety within these experiences for the individual and you've sort of developed a categorization tool that you, I, I'd imagine is probably used to break things down into something that can be studied or researched. So what kind of experiences within this, you know, are, are they generally disassociative in the sense where people disassociate from their body or from time? Like how does, how do you even get into the weeds of trying to do research on these? Well, most of them are dissociative in the sense that they feel like they're separating from their physical bodies. Um, but not all of them. There are occasionally people who do not have that sense. They may feel like they have lost awareness of the body, but they don't actually feel like they've actually left it. In, in the more dramatic cases, which is maybe half of the cases, people feel they can look back on their bodies from an out-of-body visual perspective and see what's going on. And now, in your book, there you bring up, and, and just for the record, everyone who hasn't read this book, please do so. I will leave links for this in our show notes and many other aspects that I can. You talk about people who have left their body and then recalled events in the room around them right? that obviously they were not in position to being recalled. And so, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Uh, about 40% of people who have a near-death experience will talk about leaving their bodies and watching what's going on around the body. And often that's in the operating room, seeing the resuscitation uh, procedures going on. Now, sometimes they just say some things that, things that are easily guessed. For example, they may talk about the doctors wearing green suits and masks over their faces. Well, not surprising. Anybody could have guessed that. Um, anybody who watches television would know that. But a lot of times they describe things that they could not have guessed or could not have predicted. Um, one of my colleagues, Jan Holden, has studied about 100 of these cases where what the, what the person said they saw went out of their body was possible to corroborate. It could be corroborated or not. And she looked at the corroboration and she found that in 92% of these cases, there was complete corroboration by some third party, a doctor or a nurse, for example. In about 6%, they were mostly right but had some errors. And only 1% was wrong. Uh, let me give you an example of a dramatic one that, that I was involved with that was... Um, very accurate. This is a 55-year-old 50, man who had uh, crushing chest pain, and he was rushed to the hospital and had emergency quadruple bypass surgery. That's replacing four of the vessels approaching his heart. They were clogged. And in the procedure, he tells me he rose out of his body and looked down and saw his surgeon flapping his arms as if he was trying to fly. Uh, when he told me this, I had trouble not laughing, so I I've been a doctor for 30 years at this point. had never heard anything so ridiculous in my life. Um, so I said to him, that sounds to me like it might be a hallucination because of the anesthesia you had, because he was, after all, totally anesthetized. And he got very uh, upset about that and said, no, no, it's, it's really, I really saw it. You can ask my surgeon. So after uh, I talked to him for a while, I did talk to the surgeon about it. And the surgeon sheepishly admitted, yes, I, I do do that. Um, it's a practice I developed when I trained in, in Japan, and I've never seen any American doctors do this. And I let my assistant start the procedure, 
Well, I put on my sterile gowns and gloves. And when I walk into the operating room and I want to supervise them, I don't want to risk touching anything that's not in the sterile field. So I place my hands with the gloves on them flat against my chest on my gown. And I point things out to my assistants with my elbows so I don't risk touching anything. And he illustrated just the way the patient did, waving his elbows around with his hands on his chest. Uh, and I don't know how the patient could have known that. Um, he insists that he actually saw it. Um, but it's not something that I had ever seen before. And so, you know, you've dedicated 50 years of your professional career to sort of understanding this, as, as well as being a psychiatrist and treating patients, right? Right. And so how did you get into this? Like, you know, in your book, you you came from a family of science. You're right, right. rationalist, materialist, and here we are having this conversation. Right. My, my, my household growing up um, had no sense of a spiritual or religious tradition. We never even talked about those things. Uh, the physical world was all we, we knew about. And when you die, you die. And that's, that was just the way life is. That wasn't a sad thing. That's just part of life. And we certainly saw pets who died and, you know, relatives who died and that was it. So I went through medical school uh, with that mindset that the physical world is all there is. And then in one of my first weeks as a intern in psychiatry, I was asked to see a patient in the emergency room. When I went out to see her, she was totally unconscious. I, I could not arouse her. Uh, so I assumed she had some overdose on something that knocked her out. But her roommate was waiting to talk to me in another room about 50 yards down the hall. So I went to talk to the roommate uh, and spent about 15, 20 minutes with her, um, sent her on her way, and then went back to talk to the patient, and she was still unconscious. So she was admitted to the intensive care unit overnight. When I went to see her early the next morning, she was still drowsy but arousable. And I started to introduce myself, and she stopped me and said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. And that kind of stunned me because I, I didn't know how she could have See, I mean, I, I was sure she didn't see me. So I said to her, I thought you were out cold last night. How, how did you see me? And she said, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. And that just blew me away. I couldn't imagine what she was talking about. The only way that could have happened is she had left her body and come down the hall with me. And clearly that was ridiculous because you are your body. How can you leave it? She saw that I was confused, so she started to tell me about the conversation I had with the roommate, what we were wearing, where we were in the room, what it looked like, my, my questions of her, her answers, and she made no mistakes at all. Um, I was just, I couldn't make any sense of this at all. I thought, wait, someone's going to play, be playing a trick on me. This can't be true. But I was there not to deal with my confusion, but to deal with hers. I had a job to do. So I pushed out of my mind and just worked on, on her suicidal thoughts. Over the next several years, through my psychiatric training, I saw a few other patients who described similar things to me, leaving their bodies, seeing things, sometimes encountering other entities in this state before they came back to life. I assumed that this is part of their mental illness because I, I just couldn't make any sense out of it still. And then in 1975, one of my colleagues at the University of Virginia, Raymond Moody, published a book called Life After Life, in which he gave us the term near-death experience and described what they were like. And I realized for the first time, this was not something that was just confined to psychiatric patients. 
Perfectly normal people all over the world were having these same phenomena. I still couldn't understand it. But as a scientist, I know that you don't run away from things you don't understand. You run towards them, try to understand them. So I thought, well, this doesn't make sense to me. Let me collect a lot of cases and try to analyze them and see if I can find what's causing these things. So I started doing that. And now, 50 years later, I'm still trying to do that. So how far back do these accounts extend? Like, you know, humans have been around for quite some time. Recorded history has been around for quite some time. Like, how far back are you finding something that can discernibly be recognized as a near-death experience, per se? Well, we're finding them as far back as we have written records. Uh, Certainly, we see them from ancient Greece and Rome and from ancient Egypt. There have also been accounts of what we now call near-death experiences collected from Aboriginal tribes in the Pacific, in Australia, and in the U.S., in in, uh, First Nations tribes, Native American tribes. Uh, And they're basically the same as the accounts we hear today. And today we hear the same accounts from people all over the world of different religions, different cultures. So that actually extends to something else that I was wanting to ask you, is that, and you may have just answered this, but is there any type of cultural influence or religious influence? Now, when, you, when you're going back to like, you know, Micronesian cultures, you know, pre-James Cook, you're going back to a point where potentially they are not being influenced or meddled by Western culture. Right. Do they have the same overall ambience to it? Or do we subconsciously influence via culture, religion, and society the experiences that we have in these? That's, that's a great question, Adam. We've actually looked at cases we've collected of near-death experiences before Moody wrote his book in 1975 that told us what to expect. And we've compared them with cases we have nowadays, and there's virtually no difference. Um, When you look at cases around the world, the raw phenomena of the near-death experience that they report is the same, but the words they use to describe them are different. Most people who have a near-death experience, or NDE, start by saying, uh, there are no words for this. I can't, I can't describe it for you. So we researchers say, great, tell me about it. <laughs> so we force them to distort it by putting it into words. And they use whatever metaphors come most readily to them, which are often religious or cultural. So, for example, people all over the world will talk about encountering a warm, loving being of light. And people in Western cultures, uh, Christians, Jewish, Jews, uh, Muslims, will talk about God. And they may say, I'm going to use the word God so you know what I'm talking about, but it wasn't the God I was taught about in church. It's, it's much bigger than that. But people from Hindu, Buddhist, Eastern cultures will not use that word. They may use some other word, or they may just say this loving being of light. And it's not just the, the being of light. Almost everything about the near-death experience is described in cultural metaphors. For example, most people talk about proceeding through a long, dark, enclosed structure to get from this earthly world to the other realm. And people in the U.S. will usually say, I went into a tunnel. Well, Aboriginal cultures don't say that. Uh, People in third world countries may say, I went into a cave or I fell into a well. Uh, I've interviewed one fellow here who was a truck driver and he said, I got sucked into this long tailpipe. (laughs) 
So whatever metaphor comes to you most readily is the one you use. So, so okay, so we, we have entire groups within culture having these experiences. They extend back to a point in time where Western influences or us being able to subconsciously influence culture on these experiences aren't really relevant. So you're seeing cohesiveness throughout this yes. this time in these periods. Yes. So what are some of the, I don't want to say symptoms, but what are some of the effects of having an NDE? Like, you know, for me, for instance, you know, as just a generic thing, like I had really significant photophobia to a point where I was getting like pure Corey Hart wearing sunglasses inside the house. At night, fluorescent lights would just be very painful. And I've right. read that that's, that's another consistency across the board for people with these things. So what are some of the psychological as well as physical changes that occur post-NDE? Yeah, yeah. Well, I will say that there are a lot of people who say they are much more sensitive after the death experience uh, to light, to sound, uh, to odors. Some can't be around um, perfumes or, or colognes. And some people say they are much more sensitive to alcohol and can't drink afterwards. But, but uh, not the majority. What we hear most commonly from near-death experiences is they're no longer afraid of death. No matter what they thought of death beforehand, or no matter what the near-death experience was like for them, they say they're no longer afraid of death. Now, the, the idea of dying may still feel, feel painful to them and, and frightening, but once you get through the process, death itself is no longer frightening. They also often describe feeling more spiritual. And they don't mean more religious. In fact, most people feel that they're actually less religious than they were before. They feel less wedded to one particular denomination. They feel equally at home in any house of worship or just out in nature. But by spiritual, they mean they feel much more a deep connection to other people, uh, to the natural world, to the universe, to the divine, to something larger than themselves. And that makes them feel, because they're more connected to other people, more compassionate to other people. Uh, they end up embracing the golden rule, do unto others as you have them do unto you, which is part of every religion we have. But for them, it's not, as it is for most of us, a guideline we're supposed to follow. For them, they've experienced it as a law of the universe. In my near-death experience, they say, in my life review, I felt the effects of every one of my actions on people around me. When I hurt other people, I felt the hurt in my near-death experience. When I was kind to other people, I felt that kindness. And that changes their behavior as well. So, so we have these experiences. They're consistent across the board within some degree of, of being able to categorize. And there seems to be generally a positive effect in the aftermath of which, whatever traumatic experience might have elicited the NDE, the subsequent time afterward, people are generally made to be more spiritual, more empathetic. Is there a consistency across the board with notions of like interconnectivity with the universe or everything's connected, that this sense of oneness? There is. There is. Most people do describe after a near-death experience feeling a part of something that's, that's greater, that's universal. And they will talk about uh, feeling like they're part of, like they're a, a wave in the ocean. Hmm. <coughs> in the sense that they are composed of the same thing the whole ocean is, 
but they are discrete from the ocean. They have a separate structure, at least for a short time, and then they may fade back into the ocean. Uh, they often use the metaphor of a hand. We look at every finger, they look like they're separate things, but they're actually all interconnected with the palm. So if you cut off one finger, it hurts the whole hand. And as I said, that makes them change their behavior. They become much more altruistic. They tend to volunteer more. They may end up changing their careers. Uh, I've known people who are career military officers or policemen who couldn't continue in that in that profession anymore. Just the idea of being violent towards someone, even in self-defense, was unthinkable to them. And they often end up uh, retraining to some for some um, helping profession, uh, healthcare, uh, teaching, social work, clergy, and so forth. I've also known people who were in very competitive businesses who came back from an NDE saying that the idea of getting ahead at someone else's expense no longer makes sense to them because hurting someone else means hurting themselves as well. And they either change the way they do their business or change professions entirely. Uh, a lot of this sounds like it's, it's beneficial effects, but it can cause a lot of problems for people also. Well, uh, it's disruptive, I, <laughs> you know, changing, you're changing your vocation and perhaps you're, you're treading water in a, in a relationship of some kind or exactly any number yeah. of things. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of marriages end up breaking up because of a near-death experience. If one person suddenly has a change in values, the other one doesn't, uh, that can cause a lot of stress, um, I, I, one, one person I knew well, his, his wife told me that she, he's not the same person he was before. She said, on the one hand, we desperately need a new car. He couldn't care less about material things. On the other hand, he no longer beats me. <laughs> well, that's so, always a benefit. <laughs> yeah. But I've also heard from, from the children of near-death experiences that they feel slighted because for now they say, my mother loves everybody. Not just me. Well, and you have one reference in your book too to, for lack of a better term, a gangster who had a near-death experience and then couldn't continue in that sort of environment of violence and then went into social right. work, basically can barely pay his rents and he went from living high via exploitation, if you want to call it that, and then completely disassembled his life left organized crime and literally works with kids in social work. Like it's, right. it, it sounds lovely. And, and I get what you mean. It's disruptive to the people on the sidelines. Yes. I, I talked to that fellow's uh, girlfriend or I should say former girlfriend. And she told me he no longer cares about things of substance, meaning money. <laughs> yeah. So out of curiosity then, so you can have these experiences in a variety of different circumstances, you know, thinking you're dying, about to die. Now, it makes me think of like, you know, Sufism with Turlian dervishes or, you know, there's various groups who get into these ecstatic states via, you know, sitting in a cave in absolute darkness right. for six days or, you know, fasting or any number of things. Do you, do you see this evolving in those like circumstances? Yes. Most of our religious traditions... Uh, have developed technologies over the centuries to induce states like this, whether it's starvation or flagellation or uh, drumming and, and singing um, or extreme spinning around, trying to get yourself distance from your physical body and your physical sensations. Uh, and again, as you said before, dissociated from the physical body. And in that state, you're more likely to enter into this spiritual 
I don't know what you call it, realm or dimension, another way of, of being. I hate so, talking about it as a different world because it's not the same, it's, it's the same world, but a different, different aspect of it. Well, I, I feel like in a way it almost is, you know, like when I, when I would, I got out of the ICU and I, you know, had my NDE, I, I remember talking to my wife being like, this isn't real. This, right. this, what we perceive as reality isn't real. And it, it was sort of like this weird, you know, feeling completely disassociated in my body. Like, you know, with my hands urinating, defecating, breathing, everything just seemed so nuanced and ridiculous. You know, and I, I think I, I've used the term, it, it felt like I was being downgraded from a Cray supercomputer to like a, a Commodore 2000, you know. Right, right. That's actually a common sensation among among near-death experiences, they come back and they're a little confused about, well, that seems so real, and yet here I am in this world. Is this real or is this just a dream? And they may, may be confused for a while, um, but it, eventually they start come to terms with the fact that, well, this is where I am now for whatever reason. I'm not there. I know what that was like. I remember it. But here I am now, so I have to live with this now. And they end up actually becoming more invested in this life. Uh, they say, I'm, I'm here for some reason. I may or may not know what it is, what it is, but as long as I'm here, I'm going to make the most of it. And they tend to enjoy things more than they used to. They live life to the fullest. If they say, if you're not afraid of dying, then you're not afraid of living either. You, you want to go ahead and take risks. What's the worst that happens? You die. Great. You know, it's, it's interesting. And I've been holding back on this. This is a podcast about psychedelics. Right. And the vast majority of the stuff you're saying in specifically the experience, disassociation, the after effects, these ideas of interconnectivity, they all very much parallel people coming out of meaningful psychedelic experiences. You right. have, you mentioned in your books, things like dimethyltryptamine, DMT, and LSD. Right. You know, you've, you guys have done sort of comparative studies on that. We have. Um, it's it's really hard to do that, but you can look at the verbal reports people give about near-death experiences and about drug experiences. And we've actually done this and, and trying to look at, quantify which types of drug experiences are most like the near-death experience. Um, and there are sort of a hierarchy of different, different drugs you can take and, and which ones are, are most similar to the near-death experience. Um, ketamine being being the most similar to NDE. But if you talk to people who have had both, as, as you have, um, they often say it's not quite the same. And one, one near-death experience that put it to me this way, he said, on psilocybin, I saw heaven. In my near-death experience, I was in heaven. And another fellow who actually was a, was a combat veteran said, it's like being in combat or watching a movie about war. If, you, if someone asks you to describe it, you'd use the same words to describe what you saw, what you heard, what you smelled. But the experience is not the same. One is obviously a copy of the other or a diluted version of the other. So has anyone... Okay, well, let's, let's look at this perspective. So you, you look at psychedelics, tryptamine-based, generally working through your serotonergic system. Do people have any idea what mechanism is occurring when people are having a psychedelic experience? Uh, there is a lot of research going on in that, um, Adam, and especially in the last 20 years, 
Uh, there's been a lot of work with the um, the, the neuroelectrical uh, functions of the of the brain when you're under drugs. It's hard to do work work with, with the uh, neurochemistry. Most of the work with neurochemistry of, of of psychedelic drugs has been done with animals, not with humans. It's really hard to sample people's brains while they're having a <laughs> just generally, yeah. Uh, but we find that, uh, for example, the drugs that um, were most similar to near-death experiences and their effects were ketamine, and then uh, DMT, and then salvia, and they all work on different neurotransmitters. Mm. They're different neurotransmitters in the brain, so it doesn't really help us pinpoint what the mechanism is. But obviously, they're still they're all having some of the same effect, regardless of what neurochemicals are involved. Now, we are taught in medical school that the mind is what the brain does, that all our thoughts and perceptions and feelings are created by the brain. And if that were true, then you could not have a near-death experience. Some of them clearly happen when the brain is offline, when you are flatlined. And yet people who have a near-death experience say that it's the most vivid uh, experience they've ever had. And that should not happen if the brain is not functioning, if it's created by the brain. Now, in everyday life, of course, the mind and the brain seem to be the same thing. When you get intoxicated, you don't think the same. When you have a stroke, a hit on the head, that affects your thinking. So it feels to us as if the brain and the mind are the same thing, or the brain is creating the mind. But under extreme circumstances, like the approach of death, when the brain is starting to fail, the mind seems to be blossoming. And the tight connection between brain and mind seems to break down. And this makes no sense to the mainstream neurophysiological explanation that brain causes mind. But there's been a secondary theme throughout neuroscience, going back to Hippocrates 2,000 years ago, that says what the brain does is... Um, receive thoughts from the mind as a radio receiver would receive signals and then translate them into signals that the body can understand. Hippocrates wrote that the brain is the interpreter of the mind. Now, that raises questions of where the mind is, and we have no idea. Um, But there are now some scientists who are looking at this function of filtering that the brain does to let in some thoughts and some perceptions and not others. And this makes sense because we know all our nervous system parts are filtering all the time. You know, your eyes don't let in all the light that's available, just a narrow spectrum of the electromagnetic field that is important for our survival. The brain, as the rest of our body, is evolved to help us survive in the physical world. So we don't need to perceive infrared and ultraviolet light to find food and shelter and a mate and void predators. Likewise, your ears don't hear sounds that other animals do because they're not important to us. So it makes sense that the brain would also, if it's receiving signals from the mind, filter out those things that are not important to survival and just let in the things that we need to survive. So when people in near-death experiences or in psychedelic trips talk about encountering other entities like deities that doesn't help survival. In fact, it may hurt survival. (laughs) Yes, somewhat. So the brain would normally shut those things out. And the idea is that in a near-death event 
or in a psychedelic trip, this filtering function of the brain is weakened or diminished so that all these other parts of consciousness can come through. And there are, in fact, people now who are studying what parts of the brain may be involved in it. And this may be something that's, that's beyond the interest of your, of your listeners, but we particularly focus, focus on the, um, uh, the thalamocortical loop or the, the defense or the default mode network. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and oddly enough, the default mode network has some very interesting activity one under psychedelics too. And you know, you'll have a significant yeah. decrease in your default mode network while right. under LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, and then you have a sort of a rebound effect afterwards. Right. So, and, and the default mode network or DMN is what gives you a sense of the ego of, uh, of being a coherent, intact entity. Um, and without that, you feel dissociated, as you said before, that you're not a part of this body anymore. You're something beyond it. I'm curious about the research aspect of all of this. So with respect to psychedelics, it's a little bit easier because it's, it's a physical or molecule chemical that you can introduce. With near-death experiences, you're limited to survivability bias as well as a right. few other things. Um, a while ago, I'm going to say a few years now, I read an interesting book by uh, Mary Roach uh, called Spook, and it talked about you know the afterlife, near-death experiences, um, things of these natures. And there was a study at that time um, – um, that was just being implemented. I believe it was called the AWARE uh, yes, trial. Yes. Yeah. And then I believe there's a second iteration of that by uh, Dr. Sam Parnia, Parnia. I believe, yeah, yeah. out of the UK. Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Because I believe his second uh, iteration of that study was recently just published in uh, sure. Resuscitation. And I don't know how much that has to do with the work that you're doing. Um, but it sounds like it's pretty interesting because it is talking about like EEGs during uh, cardiac arrests. Yeah, I, actually, Mary Roach mentioned my study of this uh, in her book. So. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Sorry, it has been a while since I've read it. So I do apologize. Yeah. 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 Well, so what was the EEG? that was going on while someone was in cardiac arrest? Like, did you see a reduction in DMN that you would be parallel with a reduction in sense of self? We, we don't really have research looking at uh, imaging of the brain during a near-death uh, experience. It's it's hard to do that when someone is having a, a, a life-threatening crisis and you're trying to resuscitate them. You're not going to take the half hour to put on EEG electrodes and then, you know, <laughs> plus the fact that when you're, when you're resuscitating someone, you're pounding on their chest and shooting electricity into the bottle <laughs> yeah. body, and that's going to affect the brain waves. I would now, almost. Not- oh, sorry. I was going to say I, I would wonder. Like the only way to necessarily do that is people who are, you know, uh, medical assisted suicide, or someone with an expected mortality occurring, and sign documents and have them go gracefully into the good right. night. Has anyone? Right. Is that something that's happening? Uh, people or? have certainly thought about that and attempted to do that. But for the most part, hospitals, uh, ethics review boards will not permit that type of research to go on. Mm, fair enough. Um, we tried to do one of those studies at our hospital looking at patients who were under deep anesthesia, and the hospital would not let us do that. They were afraid. First of all, they said, you can't leave your body. That's ridiculous. And second, they said, we don't want to risk people not coming back in, so don't even try this. <laughs> well, see, it's funny that but, they preface it this way. This is impossible. However, yeah. you're like, okay, right, fair enough. Right. Well, but it, one of the things that, that you can look at objectively uh, during a near-death experience is when people claim to leave their bodies 
and see things. So you can do things where you know someone's going to be out of their body and put visual targets around the room where they can see them only if they're looking down from the ceiling. And there have been six studies like this that have been published, uh, and not one has shown any evidence. Um, they don't show anybody who has claimed to leave their body and see a target. So there's no accurate reports, no inaccurate reports. Just no one has claimed to do this. Um, we did one study like this of people who are having their hearts stopped intentionally during an operation to insert something in the chest. And we knew exactly when they were going to have the, the heart stop, so we knew all of the variables about it. Um, and we found no one in that study who claimed to have left their body. Well, now, the, the, does the, the, the sedation affect that? Like if I was jacked on profanol and put out in by an anesthesiologist, would that limit? Like do people who are being sedated with profanol do come out and say that they've had near-death experience in other circumstances? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, the purpose of anesthesia is to stop you from being yeah. conscious. And certain of the anesthetics we use um, are designed to stop you from remembering. So later on, you won't remember having these things done to you. So you would think that they would stop people from remembering near-death experiences. And yet we have lots of accounts of people having NDEs when they were, no, when they were totally anesthetized. So clearly that's not a limiting mm. factor. Let me say that the largest study of this type uh, where targets are placed around the room of people who are going to have heart attacks or whose hearts were going to stop was done by Sam Parney, the so-called AWARE study. And he's done a couple of these studies now. He's placed targets up on shelves near the ceiling where you can only see them from looking down. And he puts them in, in rooms in the intensive care unit where people are likely to have their hearts stop. He's done this in 20 hospitals simultaneously. So we get thousands of people in this study. And again, he has not had anyone leave their body and claim that they saw the target. Now, in the most recent study he published, he was able to measure the EEG, the brain waves. This is almost impossible to do because people are having their, their chest pounded. They're being electrocuted through the chest. Uh, but he managed to do it between chest poundings, you know, for a brief second. Yeah, between, snapshot. Right, yeah. right. Uh, he reported that in, I think, 11 of the uh, – he, actually, he had over 500 patients who did this. Only 53 had some measurable brain waves measured. And out of those, 11 had some awareness of being conscious during that time, six of whom reported near-death experiences. He found that in a small number of these patients who were, had their EEGs measured – there was measurable brainwave activity for up to 60 seconds after the hearts stopped. And he wondered whether this was related to the near-death experience. Unfortunately, none of those patients who had that persistent brainwave activity reported near-death experiences. And none of the patients who reported near-death experiences had that persistent brainwave activity. So it's hard to draw a connection there. <laughs> it is. So... Another question for you is that, and I don't know if this is anecdotal, you know, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of things regarding psychedelics have a tendency to be anecdotal based on the, the limited research, but right. that dimethyltryptamine or DMT is present in all living things. Do you think that there's a correlation between near-death experiences and perhaps an endogenous release 
of DMT with it's it's almost as if you know when when you talk about psychedelics that people will say it's not quite like it. It was like I was viewing heaven, but in my NDE yeah. I was in heaven. But do you think that perhaps an endogenous release is like a lock to my you know a key to my lock like scenario of having a tailor made experience with my own hormones and various yeah. endogenous chemicals? Yeah, it's it's plausible. It's plausible. Um, you know. Um, Carl Jansen, who's one of the psychiatrists who started with the ketamine theory of near-death experiences decades ago, he got this theory published in, in many mainstream journals, including Lancet. Um, and he proposed that because ketamine experiences could mimic near-death experiences, something about this um, chemical and its pathways was involved in the mechanism of near-death experiences, uh, the NMDA blockade, for example. And he wrote about this a lot. And that eventually he had a near-death experience himself. <laughs> and what he said then was, I no longer think that ketamine causes the experience. What I think now is that ketamine opens the door to let you have this experience. That it's always there. This other realm is always there, but we normally don't have access to it. And what ketamine did for me was open that door so I could get to the other realm. But the near-death experience did it without taking anything. So I well, think that it's that's, possible, it's yeah. possible that, that psychedelics do the same thing. Because it kind of leads me back to the idea of endogenous release of compounds yes. in your own body that open this up or, or suppress your brain. And another interesting thing to mention too is that when you're talking about the relationship between brain and mind – the way that you were referring to it does insinuate that the mind is external to the body or right. at least external to physical construction of this organic computer that we have. Um, yeah, we have problems when we talk about being external because that's a physical term. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. And if, 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 the, if the mind is not a physical entity, then it can't have a physical location and be external or, or internal to anything. Uh, so we can say that it's not a product of the brain. And in fact, people who believe that the brain creates all our thoughts and feelings and so forth have no idea how that could do, that could happen. No one has ever proposed a mechanism by which a neurochemical or electrical process in the brain can create a thought. We just assume, oh, that's it's got to be true, and someday we'll find it. Well, someday we'll find it is not a scientific proposal. Well, it's also vaguely interesting that, you know, I've read... Many books on consciousness, Donald Hoffman, and I've been to a consciousness seminar or conference, I guess, at university. And most people have the generalized concept that we don't understand consciousness. Right. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know how it forms. We don't know how it materializes. We know that there's neurological function that per pertain to thoughts, activities, feelings, but yet how we are conscious is something that's been really undefined. Which makes, makes it vaguely ironic that there's conferences on something that no one has any idea about. But It is. You know, we, we try to link consciousness to certain uh, circuits in the brain, and we just can't do it. And that raises the question about whether other animals share consciousness with us. I mean, people who have pets will obviously think that, oh, my cats and dogs are, are conscious. They do everything we do. But how far down uh, in, the, in, the, in the system do you say, yes, they're conscious? Are ants and bees conscious? Are uh, trees conscious? You know, how, how do you, where do you set the limits? Uh, we just have no idea. 
Well, and isn't that sort of based on sort of the scientific revolution where it started to move away from religion, but we were still anthropomorphizing everything based on sort of Catholicism and this idea that, you know, for a long period of time, it was humans are set apart. We're the only thing that's conscious, but yet a pig arguably has the emotional capacity of a four-year-old human. That's and right. so to arbitrarily set lines based on comparison to what we perceive as our own consciousness, which we don't understand, seems and, you, know, you can also see in 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 other mammals that they act as if they understand the concept of death. Animals that elephants bury their dead, yeah. you know, uh, and and really nurture them and so forth, and, and obviously grieve when their loved ones die. Uh, so is that a consciousness like ours, or is it something totally different? Well, and it's, to me, like I personally think, and this isn't backed by any type of science, that everything is conscious. Consciousness emanates from the very fabric of the universe and we simply filter it. My biological computer, my genetics allow me to filter consciousness at whatever rate is required for me. And a blade of grass similarly filters consciousness and whatever it requires to exist. Right. And and again, this is... Well, mostly based that that was a feeling that I derive from my near death experience and from psychedelics, which to me I find very similar. And another interesting thing that I kind of wanted to get into, and this kind of seems to be the point, is the notion of an egoic dissolution, which, you know, it gets thrown around very frequently in the psychedelic community. And I've had a lot of, of my listeners write in being like, What is this? And it's it's a very difficult thing to quantify. And much like a lot of the people who have near-death experiences have egoic dissolutions where you become something else, for instance. And and I remember even telling people about my near-death experience and people just being baffled or couldn't get past the hurdle of how am I, how do you, how are you something that is not you? Right, right. And so can you explain that from the perspective of a psychiatrist, what a ego dissolution is? No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> can uh, can you, the amazing Doctor Grayson, give give a give a, a punch at it? Now, obviously, there are a lot of things about the near death experience or comparable states with psychedelics that we just can't understand. And I think the problem is that we are limited by our brains and our language. And in fact, near death experiences will say, "When I was over there, everything made perfect sense to me." And over here, I can't understand it. An example of that is the sense of time. Almost all near-death experiences say there was no time over there as we know it. There was no past, present, future. There wasn't a linear sense of time. And yet when they're back here telling us about their experience, they tell it as if it's a sequence of events that obviously happened in in time. And they say, well, it makes sense over there, but here I can't tell it without giving you a time sequence. But it's just a function of our brain so limiting how we see things uh, that we can't get beyond that. Well, and much like you were talking about biological requirement, right? Like we too function as as a living entity. We at the very least have to have some sense of past, present, now. Like e- even octopus are showing like cephalopods to, right, right. to plan in advance. You know, and, and you see that, like, Christ, there, there's ants with, with emergent qualities of, of complex agriculture. You know what I mean? So it's it's almost a byproduct of being alive is this sensation of time. But, you know, in multiple psychedelic experiences that I've had, as well as my near-death experience, there was only a moment. And yeah. the reality of that is, is that there really only is a moment. 
even in this reality that we're currently talking in. We fabricate a past based on memories and we fabricate a future based on perspective and presumption. But, yeah. you know. Well, I'm not sure I could say that it's a part of being alive to have that. It's a high-functioning conscious uh, mammal, perhaps. Right, that? right, <laughs> right. I mean, we don't know. Another part is that is that it's important to our survival to have a sense that we are a unique individual. We are intact individual. And that as much as my, I may love you, I am not you. I am separate from you. And if I didn't think that way, it would be hard for me to, to function in everyday life and hard for me to survive. Now, I don't know if, if um, uh, colonial uh, animals like ants and bees would have the same sense of an ego that we have. They may, I don't know. Uh, but so much of the way we think is determined by our brains. You know, even, you know, the fact that, that we think our brain creates our mind. Well, it's our brain that's telling us that. It's kind of biased, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for for my identity to exist, we need to believe in this. Let's let's figure this right. out. Well, so okay, so you started off this your your journey five decades ago as a materialist, as a rationalist, as a man of science, and you've gone down this path. Where where, where do you think now? Like yeah, well, I'm still a scientist and I'm still a skeptic. Um, you know, I I don't know anything really about philosophy or theology. I deal with with data, with the empirical world. That's the way I was trained to to think about things, and actually, I love doing that. Uh, so, all these thoughts I have about what a near-death experience is, I assume, I assume they are tentative hypotheses, and I may change my mind about them in ten years when we have more data coming in. But as of now, it looks like the evidence to me says that we are more than our physical bodies. And our consciousness is a lot more than just what our brain produces. And that being so, it's entirely plausible that when our, when our bodies and brains cease to exist, our consciousness may persist. Now, I can't say that I know that. I don't know that. Um, but it looks that way to me. And I think it makes sense to act as if that were true. Uh, and then if you're wrong, you're wrong. Well, and I think that's entirely reasonable. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I like your attitude about this too, because it's not ideological. You know what I mean? It's not based on a theocracy. It's not based right. on, on adhering to materialism and science. You, you started someplace, you were swayed by other people's experiences and you chose to look into it as opposed yes. to disregarding it as nonsense or wholeheartedly buying into it without. And I find it pleasantly refreshing that you have come to this place with this understanding, which I, I would imagine has led you to be somewhat more spiritual in your own perspective as well. Well, it's, it's also, um, it makes me enjoy life a whole lot more. When I started this out, I was really sold on the fact that science was going to explain everything to us. And I needed answers and I was sure we can get the answers. And now I don't think that's true. I think it's uh, some answers are some questions are beyond our ability to understand. We can't even formulate the right questions for some of these uh, phenomena, but that's okay. I'm no longer worried about the fact that we don't have all the answers because I'm, I think based on what near death experiences have told me, the universe is not a scary place. If we don't have all the answers, if we're not in control all the time, that's fine. 
You know, it would arguably seem, and I could be wrong about this, that you vicariously adopted some of the positive benefits of a near-death experience by simply being around these people and talking to them and immersing yourself within it. Well, Ken Ring was one of the pioneers of near-death research back in the 80s, wrote that the near-death experience is like a benign virus you catch from other people. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And there actually have been uh, half a dozen studies of college students, and in one case, uh, nursing students, who were given a course on near-death experiences. And they were tested in their values and their death anxiety before and after the course, and then at one and two-year intervals. And they find that just learning about near-death experiences does change their attitudes and outlooks. You know, it's it's interesting, too, because Roland Griffith was a scientist and researcher out of John Hopkins University and did a fairly comprehensive study with psilocybin and people who yes. had anxiety with obviously facing their impending mortality. And it elicited a lot of the same responses that you're referring to when people have a near-death experience, like a reduction in their fear of death or an absence of fear of death, a sense right. of spirituality, these mystical experiences. And it's funny that, you know, the experience derived from death is, is called mystical by the very definition of mystical, being that it is, is a naturally occurring thing that, that comes from within us. Right. And it, I think that's, again, a symptom of how we choose to view these things. You know, do you yeah. feel that over time, like obviously the last five decades, that perhaps science is moving towards a mechanism or a lens which it can look at these things? Or do you find the consensus is that people are still banging their head against the wall? when it comes to looking at things that can't be defined by materialism or rationalism? No, science is moving. It's, it's always constantly moving, but it's moving slowly. And I think scientists are moving faster than scientists at this point. <laughs> and you know, there have been three studies done, one in Scotland, one in um, Belgium, and one in the U.S., surveying scientists about their thoughts about mind and brain. And in all three countries, about a third of them, I'm sorry, about a half of them, said that the mind and the brain are not the same thing. And you wouldn't have got that result just 50 years ago. Well, and it's but, funny that it took us 50 years for half the people to think that way. You know what I mean? Like it's well, it's funny how a convenient lie can remain useful for a very long time, or at the very least, a, a convenient misrepresentation. I mean, we've, we've been aware of quantum mechanics for over 100 years now, mm -hmm. and still nobody really pays attention to it. Nobody understands it. So I'm not that surprised. <laughs> well, and and even within quantum physics, there's things that break down our sense of materialism and rationalism, and then people have to bang their head against the wall until they make some weird, very unique, esoteric perspective, and then at least something has a little bit somewhat informal explanation. Right. Hence, seemingly, what we're doing with consciousness. Yeah. Now, Dr. Grayson, one other thing that kind of came to mind on my end, um, and this has come up from... A few friends of mine, uh, more so their their fathers, as they've gotten a little bit older in life, um, they're looking towards psychedelics almost as like a precursor or a training for death. And based on the discussion that you and Adam have been having, there's a lot of similarities between mm -hmm. near death experiences and psychedelics in in terms of maybe just the empathy or the greater awareness or appreciation of life. Do you see any value in? kind of utilizing or leveraging psychedelics in this manner? And do you see any sort of external values with psychedelics in providing something similar to the research that you might be doing in near-death experiences? Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. 
you know, back in the 60s, uh, people were usually doing psychedelics in their homes or in, in, in the street without any preparation, without any guidance. And they were fascinating um, sensory experiences, but they didn't have the profound after effects that near-death experiences have. People were rarely changed uh, for a lifetime based on an LSD trip, for example. So based on those experiences from back in the 60s, I was reluctant to believe that psychedelics could really produce profound changes in people's lives. But the research done in the past couple of decades, uh, particularly with psilocybin at Johns Hopkins, some of the work done at Imperial College in London, have done some good controlled studies with with, uh, long-term follow-up. And they are reporting that there are significant changes after uh, psilocybin particularly. Now, this is not done in the street. This is done in a lab (laughs) with controlled environments and with some guidance and, you know, someone talking you through the experience. And they find that there is a significant decrease in death anxiety after these experiences. And that can last for a couple of years now. So I think there is some value in using either um, psychedelic drugs or guided meditation or some other ways of achieving an altered state in reducing people's death anxiety for example, the people who are facing their own deaths, who may want, in a sense, practice in how to die before they get there. Well, and that, that's an extremely valuable statement, and much like the ancient Greeks with the mysteries, right? Like it was dying in life so that you can live, so you, you can get moved past this, this innate biological fear of your own demise and the ceasing of the function of what we perceive as our, our self, our egoic construction. So, oh, sorry, go. No, go ahead. I was going to say, so one other thing too, you know, you were talking about Imperial College, like Chris Timmerman right now is doing sort of a sustained dimethyltryptamine infusion and monitoring people's brain activity, fMRI, as well as another company, an organization called the DTMX program. And they're, I guess you could say doing the same thing, but with the intent of sort of mapping out this realm, this environment, the DMT world. Now, like, would you see overlap in that with what you're doing in in the sense of collaboration or being able to find usefulness within their data? I think I would. I don't know a lot about uh, their work, but I think it's a very promising area. I think it's one of the few areas in altered states studies where we have some control over what we're doing, what was going on there. Most studies of altered states are really relying on the person involved, participant himself or herself, to induce the state. And we have no idea what's causing it, what's going into it, how long it's going to last. And with psychedelic drugs, we do have a sense of what's causing the experience or what's allowing the experience to occur, what's precipitating it, um, or as the people at Hopkins say, what's occasioning the experience. <laughs> Fair enough. And that gives you some clues as to what's going on with it. You know, I would, I personally would love to see, and what we had discussed briefly before about if you were able to get ethics, for instance, for someone who's palliative or going in for medically assisted suicide, sign some documents, donate their body, death, life to science, and actually be taking blood draws every 30 seconds and doing analysis on what hormones, what chemical compounds, what is going on in this person's body, say five minutes leading up to their termination 
And then yeah. during that moment, fMRI, you know what I mean? Like there's so many things that could be done, but it is interesting that perhaps our societal view of death adds this weird layer of stigma that seemingly is preventing us from studying something that all of us are going to experience, that all of us have some lingering fear. All of You know what I mean? Like it's, I find it interesting that we're, we're still stuck in this place where studying something that literally affects every living organism has this weird stigma attached right, to it. Right, right. I, I think that stigma is, is much worse in the last century or two than it had been before when people used to die at home all the time hmm. and people saw people dying at home and saw that it's not always a frightening thing. Um, and they saw people having deathbed visions and all sorts of mystical experiences as they were approaching death. And now when people die in hospitals, the family doesn't get to see that. All yeah. I know is they went in and they didn't come out. And that's terrifying for a lot of people. It is. There's like, it's sterile. It's alienating. It doesn't yes. give closure to the family members, thus leaving this weird sort of negative overtone to it. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I was just going to say, um, speaking to that, that's been a big topic of conversation in and around the profession of paramedicine is bringing the family in during the resuscitative process. And it's something that's been a change in process and practice in Canada for the last few years. And we're seeing very positive associations with families surrounding those experiences and actually being able to witness that. So mm-hmm. it is bringing very positive closure. And it's something that we're seeing as a change of practice um, for the emergency room physicians as well. Um bringing in having those like almost like a death debrief uh, with the teams post resuscitative effort um, with the patients. So um, maybe we are learning from some of the sins, mistakes of the past. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's still hard for physicians and nurses in a hospital setting um, to not do everything they can to keep the patient alive, even when it becomes ludicrous to think that they're having any quality of life. And that's why it's so important that we now have a, a vibrant hospice system in this country and in Europe as well, mm-hmm. uh, where people can not die in the hospital, but die at home or in a comfortable hospice situation where you have comfort measures, but not efforts to keep you alive at all costs. And the family can be present, and they're often death doulas, so to speak, who help you, guide you, guide you through the process. And I think this, keep it, this, this gives the, the family a much better sense of death not being such a frightening thing. You know, and it's funny, I, we just recently interviewed a woman who is a death doula as well, and she works with psychedelics, much similar to what Roland Griffith was doing. And she has ref, almost identical the same attitude. Or it's like we're, we're trying to cause a societal shift based on yeah. how we perceive things. And, you know, if, if I don't know, 99% of the people who have NADs come away with this positive outlook, change their life in absence of fear of death. It really seems like that's the direction where we really need to move in. And it's kind of optimistic to see that we are taking steps in that direction. You know, it, right. it takes a long time to shift this massive machine that is culture. And yeah. I got to admit, I feel like your book and your body of work and your career has been extremely influential. I think that yeah, you thank, thank you. Well, now, I, I think when you when you look at the the changes in our culture over the last fifty years, it's not been the scientific research so much that's changed thoughts. It's been the public uh, media that's hmm. been publicizing these phenomena. Uh, when you see everyone from from um, 
Homer Simpson to, I don't know who else has had <laughs> near-death experiences. Yeah. And they're, they're in movies, they're on television all the time. People are used to the idea. And they begin to accept it. When we talk to medical students now, they all know about near-death experiences. And they're more open to them. 50 years ago, no doctors had heard about this. They didn't know what we were talking about. Ooh, one could argue thanks to you. Just saying. <laughs> Just <you>. saying. <laughs> well, Dr. Grayson, we're very rapidly coming up to the end of the show. Uh, is there any like anything you want to talk about? Are you any new books? Like where I'm obviously I've already posted your last literary work and we're going to leave it with the show notes. Uh, is there anything else that you're doing right now that you want to talk about or well, I just want to say that um, it's important for people to realize that these are not unusual experiences. They're very common. Studies that have done in the U.S. and in Germany have said that about 5% of the general population has had a near-death experience, and that means they're willing to talk about their experience, which is one of every 20 people. So someone in your classroom, in your family, in your workplace has probably had a near-death experience. Furthermore, We've done research showing that they are not at all connected with mental illness in any way. People who have near-death experiences have the same rate of mental illness as other people do. And people who have mental illness have the same number of near-death experiences as other people do. So there's no connection between having a psychiatric disorder and having a near-death experience. And they all produce some type of after-effects that really need to be addressed um, by certainly the person who's having it and mostly by the families as well, whether they're positive or negative effects, they need to be worked through. So here's here's a question just as we're heading out here. Let's just say one of our listeners has had or was going to have a near-death experience. Is there a webpage, uh, like some sort of platform where they can go and add to the growing body of information regarding near-death experiences? Right, right. There, there's a, an, an organization called the International Association for Near-Death Studies, that's www.iands.org, which has been going for about 45 years now. And they've got worldwide chapters, local support groups. They have online support groups. They have an annual conference. They have a newsletter. In addition, there's a, study, there's a site called the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. It's www.nderf.org, run by an oncologist named Jeff Long. And he has about 5,000 near-death experiences up on the website. And anyone can log in and add their near-death experience to this. Yeah, I think that's a really relevant resource for people. Thank it's you a wonderful resource, yeah. yes. Well, Dr. Grayson, I just want to say that I really appreciated your time. You're a busy man doing relevant things. So thank you for taking time out of your day to, to have a conversation with me. It's my pleasure, Adam. Thank you for having me here. And if you ever want to explore the connection between psychedelics and near-death experiences, please, by all means, if I can help you in any way, feel free and reach out. Thank you. Thank you.